It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 22nd of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Oireachtas Committee on Media is to meet in the next hour or so. The meeting is to be held in private, but it is a most unusual break in the summer holidays for TDs and Senators. That is because of the seriousness of the need for this committee to meet. The subject is, of course, RTE or a series of crises in RTE. Neve Smith is a Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan Monaghan and uh, the Cahirlach of uh, the Media Committee and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Neve Smith, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. What do you expect to discuss at your meeting this morning? Well, good morning, Michael, to you and your listeners. And as you've quite rightly said, this has been sort of the ongoing story over the summer uh, within RTE. And as you know, in recent days, um, Grant Thornton published their part two of their investigation into RTE and the, I suppose the screaming uh, theme of all that was the lack of governance and the lack of oversight. And I think it became very clear very quickly to my colleagues on the committee that there had been a real breakdown in relationship and working relations rather with the board and with the leadership team as it was at the time in RTE. Now, we know that leadership team has changed significantly and we know that the Grant Thornton report is certainly demanding that there are significant changes in how the board operates. And the, I suppose that the board has the ability to have the information, that it has the ability to ask the questions and that it's enabled with the information that it's given to do the job that it's been appointed to do, the board mm. itself, because, I mean, they have ultimate responsibility for RTEs welfare at this point and I think it would be incumbent on us as a committee and members of my committee to I suppose reconvene and regroup and consider the outcome of that report and see where we go next from that. Well one of the main findings of uh, that report was uh, the probability that RTA set out knowingly and intentionally to make mugs out of all of us. Uh, That of course has led to this great distrust in RTE and an awful lot of anger and to people then deciding themselves that they're not going to buy their TV licence or at least that is the reason that some of the people aren't buying their TV licence because thousands of people uh, haven't 
and uh, at this stage we're looking at a loss of over 5 million euro I think it is to RTE but it'll continue to be a million a month if it keeps going the way it has been. Uh, RTE uh, is not sustainable in the current climate. How can that be addressed? Well, as you know, the minister moved very quickly when this uh, story broke in the first place to appoint and uh, commission two independent reports, one about the culture and the oversight, as you've alluded to there in governance, and the second piece about external contractors and how they're appointed and the work that they do or their um, innings with, with, with RTE. I think that a part of the, the work of the committee is to give the public an opportunity to listening to those reforms that are being put in place to have confidence that sweeping changes have been made, that there is full transparency, that the board is being allowed and, and enabled, as I said, to do the work that it is, to ask the hard questions, to get the information, that they're not stonewalled, or as we've seen in the past, completely sidelined. And big decisions that RTE make around, you know, entertainers, salaries, all that kind of thing. And I think if we can... As a committee demonstrates to the public, as we know there's been huge interest uh, in, the, in the committee's workings, perhaps that will help to rebuild the trust that you've talked about mm. there and also help and encourage people to keep their investment in RT, to keep the investment in public service broadcasting by paying their TV licence. And I think that will be hugely important. As you know, Michael, we've seen on both sides of this island um, when you don't uh, have that independent um, broadcasting service, how much, how it can destabilise uh, democracy and from a political point of view that would be a huge concern for me that we have democracy and that we mm. have good democracy and that we have stability within our country and public service broadcasting along with your good selves there's, a, there's certainly a, a hunger and enthusiasm among colleagues that the, the, whatever way the TV licence is set out from here on, that not just RTE get a slice and a portion of that, but radio stations like yourselves and others that do and play a huge important uh, part in public service broadcasting can avail of that support and funding also. Okay, but does a a new model need to be introduced? Is uh, the TV licence past its sell-by date, particularly if people aren't buying it, uh, and that trust may never be regained? I mean, you'll hear people saying I'm not paying €160 for them to line their pockets with their massive salaries, while at the same time they're laughing in our faces, making fools out of everyone. Well, exactly, and, and that is the, the purpose of the committee, I suppose, with our, our hearings. We, we have that platform to share, if you like, with the board and with the leadership team of RT that they can come in, convince the committee, convince the public, convince the minister, convince the government that they are worth investing in and that things have changed and changed dramatically. As I said, there's a new DG there, there's a new leadership team. I know it's a temporary one at the moment until... I suppose things settle down a little bit and there's ample opportunities for all the investigations. Mm. There's currently seven investigations happening with the RTE. I would hope that when we get to Christmas, the vast majority of that work will all be done, that people can see the outcomes of all of that and that, more importantly, they can hear from RTE what the changes are, that they have the transparency, that there is a good working relationship with the board and the leadership team and there's complete openness. And I think that, you know, salaries for entertainers uh, within RT is certainly a question of all of that. 
But we have to do what we can to try and ensure whatever mechanism the government will come up with. As you know, Catherine Martin has a technical group examining and had prior mm. to this happening the TV licence. Have you quite rightly said it's, it's broken? I don't think anybody's arguing with that. Yet or no, we have to find a way to plug that hole that's there at the moment and to find a sustainable way of funding public broadcasting into the future. And I said, that's not just RT. Mm. That is stations like LMFM, Northern Sound and other stations like that that do provide good public information and independent news for the public to hear from. And the challenge is great, though, isn't it? I mean, as you say, there's seven investigations. RTE have been asked for swathes of documents uh, that have not been given to your committee and to the Public Accounts Committee yet. And it seems as though we've learned it all or think we know it all and then something else pops up like today uh, and I'm sure this is not being looked at by any of the investigations but the Irish Independent is talking about GAA pundits in RTE Paul Flynn, Tomas O'Shea, Lee Keegan, Jackie Tyrrell and Sean Cavanagh. They get suits off men's boutiques and they wear them on the telly and the next thing the men's boutiques are advertising them on social media, uh, showing uh, clips of their suits on RTE television and undoubtedly there's a reward for the presenters. Uh, I mean, that's not really fair game, is it? No, and that's another, I suppose, requirement of the committee where we've asked for that register of interest and I have uh, spoken with the new DG about this. He assures me that not just the register of interest, and I think that will certainly put... um, a transparency there that hasn't been there up to this point, that if people are promoting particular brands or cars or suits or whatever that might be, that everybody is fully aware and that RTE either sanction it or they don't. And I would imagine that the, the view will be taken that they won't won't sanction things like that. It's that if you're, mm. if you're working for RTE, you're working for RTE and that any outside interests are kept separate and apart from your work with RTE. Mm. But of course, you're right, it doesn't it doesn't bode well for the public. No. I don't think there's any massive revelations in all of that either, Michael. I think that the, up to the, the summer recess, people were not surprised, perhaps perhaps disappointed, um, but not surprised with some of the of the deliberations and, and more importantly, the outcomes of what we heard. But I do think you have to have everything on the table. Mm. And as I said, the R7 inquiries, I will certainly be doing my best to try and assist the minister in getting yeah. all of those out of the way, the, mm. all the information's on the table that, please God, into the new year, we're starting in, on a very different footing with our yeah. public broadcaster. T- talk, talking uh, about that report in uh, the Irish Independent this morning, and, and in fact, talking about trying to make fools uh, out of uh, people, product placement seems to be uh, another issue, and that mentions uh, a fully stocked spar shop opening uh, in uh, the soap opera Fair City. Uh, I mean, that's the sort of stuff that you'd expect, would you not, uh, from uh, the social influencers uh, on social media. Uh, it's not the sort of stuff that you'd expect from the state broadcaster who's carrying advertising that is undoubtedly paid for, that it's not presenting as advertising. Well, you're right. And I suppose that's where we have to make the, the clear line between what is commercial and what is public broadcasting. And that the public can see where their TV license or whatever format that that's going, that it is going into public broadcasting, which is undoubtedly current affairs, the culture, arts, uh, programming for children, all of that. And aside from that, the drama that you talk about there with uh, Fair City and other, I suppose, more commercial entities and arms of RTE, that there is a complete separation between the two. 
up to this point, I think everything's got mm. muddled together, that there's no clear delineation, and it's certainly compounded the problem uh, as the stories have unfolded and been revealed over the last couple of weeks. And that is certainly what we would see, hope to see coming out from our committee hearings in the very new mm. future from the DG. So okay. that separation is there, that we are clear and confident as to where public funds are going into public broadcasting and the difference between that and the commercial aspect of what RTE has to do to survive. Would you uh, agree as uh, the chair of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Media, Neve Smith, uh, that there's a culture of greed in RTE uh, and uh, that that greed uh, stems from how the organisation is awash with money from advertising revenue uh, and that that revenue can be tapped into in the ways that we've seen, whether it's uh, by wearing a suit on television that someone has given you so that they can advertise the suit or uh, by demanding extortionate salaries as uh, the case may be? Absolutely. Well, I mean, greed is not a word I'm comfortable with. I think there's certainly been overly inflated salaries for some, but it has to be said, it hasn't been for all. There's 1,800 staff working in, in, in RT and I'm very mindful of the fact there is two different worlds as, as I would see it in RT. There are those that are you know, just making the average salary and uh, doing incredibly important work mm. in terms of research. And then you have entertainers arguably on overinflated salaries. And I think that that's where the work of the DG will be hugely important. I understand that's already happening. And we, we did see that when publicly he stated during the Ryan Tuberty debacle that uh, he was dealing directly with Ryan Tuberty and not with any external contractors. Mm. And I think that will have to become... Uh, something of the past as well if people are to have confidence and I think there'll have to be complete and open transparency on what salaries are for people I think there will have to be a cap on salaries I think that uh, it's that would be all part of the rebuilding of trust with the public in mm. the future. Yeah, and then you've the agents and the advertising executives, uh, the advertising agencies, uh, also then uh, the entertaining of uh, these people and the big trips uh, abroad, the tickets for concerts and games and all of that sort of thing. And all of this stems from advertising and commercial revenue. Uh, do you think uh, that RTE can continue to be dual funded, uh, that it would continue to to take the license fee money and continue to sell advertising in the way that it has been uh, because a lot of that has led to these problems or should it be publicly funded and get rid of the advertising? I don't think that's a, a sustainable model or approach to be honest with you Michael and I, I'm not the financial advisor mm. or, or have that even background in, in RTE but I don't think it's sustainable to think that uh, they could manage without uh, the commercial aspect too but I think what the public really deserve is a clear line as to where the public funds are going, i.e. the licence fee uh, revenue from government, as opposed to the commercial aspect that is required to do things, perhaps like the Late Late Show. I mean, they're, they're equally important aspects of RTE. They're part of the institution of RTE. They're part of Irish culture. And I don't think it should be one... Uh, for the sake of the other. I, I do think that it probably will be necessary for RTE in the future to have both. But I think what the problem has been up to now is neither perhaps the, the, the committee for certain, but perhaps the government also, mm. haven't been clear uh, from RTE as to what the difference and where the, the, the monies are going. In ter- I, think, I believe it's been all thrown into one pot and that's a very muddy water to get into. And I think that will be into the future for RTE survival. They'll need to be very clear 
about where TV license and public funding is going as opposed to the commercial entity and make that very clear to the public for the rebuilding of public confidence. Members of your committee have been somewhat critical of uh, the Minister this week. Uh, Shane Castle is telling us yesterday that he'd like to hear from the Minister uh, and her thoughts on the Grant Thornton report because I don't think uh, we've heard from Catherine Martin since. Uh, Alan Dillon uh, saying uh, that she should be out talking uh, about uh, the crises and indeed the solutions this week. Uh, would you echo those sentiments? Well, I think the the month of August can be kind of tricky for people, Michael, being honest, and I believe she is on a, on a family holiday. And also, um, while being on holidays, being very um, in touch with her department officials as to what um, has been. And, and she did with, with, um, make a uh, statement. Uh, on the Grant Thornton report last week. I think the Minister has a very, I suppose, difficult position and a tight rope to walk in the sense that you want, as government TV, as a government minister, she has to keep an arm's length approach, uh, allow RTE the breathing space, which they've had over the last six weeks, to compile the information that's been required. I mean, they asked for like 100 documents between our committee and PAC, as I said, there's seven investigations going on within the organisation. That's a huge amount of digging in terms of pulling together the information, a lot of it's historical information going back 10 and 20 years around the barter account and all of that. I think the Minister has been trying to walk the type of book, giving them the, the breathing space and also allowing um, temperatures to mm. settle a little bit, if you like, so we can get down to the real nitty-gritty. I have no doubt mm. Uh, the minister will be back out over the next week or two, okay. uh, giving her thoughts and opinions. As to where uh, and people will be looking to hear what solutions she's proposing. The TV license model is outdated. You said, what possibilities are there after that? That we pay for RTE's funding through taxation, uh, that it's collected by revenue. These are some of the things that people are, are talking about. What are your thoughts well, on that? Absolutely, and you know that she appointed a, a technical group on foot of the outcome, the forty-nine or fifty recommendations that were made by the future of the media commission and the big one the big elephant in the room is always around the tv license and, and the funding of RTE into the future how that is done how is collected what mechanisms are in place for that and more importantly from the public's point of view is how that is used and that openness and transparency as to how it is spent we know the technical report has concluded its work i think the minister really was hoping had this not happened to be in a position to set out her stall of how uh, the, the licence fee would be operated or what mechanism would be put in place to replace that into the future. And of course, this all blew up in the middle of that, just as she was about to, to, to lay those cards on the table. That has been paused, but my understanding is the work is completed on it, so I have no doubt when she's got full confidence that RTE has its uh, house in order, if you like, she will be certainly coming out and telling the public and RTE and sharing with our government colleagues and three leaders in, in government how okay. he foresees that's been done into the future for RTE. Just one last question if I, I can uh, your meeting uh, will be virtual today uh, I think uh, a video meeting, a uh, private meeting uh, do you expect uh, that there'll be a public meeting with witnesses before you next month? I do indeed, I do indeed, there's still uh, important voices that we haven't heard from that being of DG uh, sorry, of D Forbes rather the former DG and also of Jim Jennings head of content, I have been reassured by the new uh, DG that uh, Jim Jennings uh, when he was fit and healthy again he has uh, had a difficulty and, and some health problems but when he's fit and healthy again will certainly be in a position to come before the committee and I know that that will be um, good news to my t- committee colleagues, we haven't had any uh, insights from these forms as to when he will be available 
And also, I, I would be encouraging and hopeful that my colleagues will be agreeable to bringing the full board in in front of the committee. We haven't heard those voices. Some of them have been there for the last five years throughout all of this. Some are more new to the board. There is a very rigorous process to go through to get on the board of RTE. It's a very privileged position to hold, but along with that privilege comes real responsibility and I know that my colleagues will want to feel really certain that the board are doing and being enabled to do the job that they've been appointed to do and I have no doubt they will be voices that the committee will want to hear from in the very near future as well. Okay, well look, thank you very much indeed uh, for taking time to speak to us uh, this morning just ahead of uh, that meeting of uh, your committee. Uh, much appreciated. Neve Smith is uh, TD for Cavan Monaghan, a Fianna Fáil TD and also the chairperson of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Media. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the dreadful news that Saudi Arabian border guards have been killing at least hundreds of Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers who tried to cross the Yemen-Saudi border between March of 2022 and June of this year. This is according to a report published yesterday by Human Rights Watch. If committed as part of a Saudi government policy to murder migrants, Human Rights Watch says these killings, which appear to continue would be a crime against humanity. The 73-page report, they fired on us like rain. Saudi Arabian mass killings of Ethiopian migrants at the Yemen-Saudi border found that Saudi border guards have used explosive weapons to kill many migrants and shot other migrants at close range, including many women and children in a widespread and systematic pattern of attacks. In some instances, Saudi border guards asked migrants what limb to shoot and then shot them at close range. Saudi border guards also fired explosive weapons at migrants who were attempting to flee back to Yemen. Even when I remember, I cry. I saw a guy calling for help. He lost both his legs. He was screaming and saying, Are you leaving me here? Please don't leave me. We couldn't help him because we were running for our lives. Human Rights Watch's extensive investigation includes first-hand accounts from 42 people and the verification and geolocation of over 100 videos and photos and the analysis of hundreds of square kilometres of satellite imagery. They found evidence that Saudi border guards have used explosive weapons and shot people at close range in what appears to be a policy targeting migrants and asylum seekers, including women and children, at the border. Human Rights Watch believes this may amount to crimes against humanity. Saudi Arabia's border forces should stop intentionally using lethal force to kill Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers with explosive weapons. That's according to Human Rights Watch. When Saudi border guards see a group, they fire continuously. When they kill everyone, they go down to collect all those who didn't die. This is what happened to me. I survived. And they came to meet me and showed me the dead. Then they took us to a detention centre and beat us all there. Saudi border guards killing hundreds of Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers trying to cross uh, the border. Women and children out of view of the rest of the world while they spend billions on sports washing to try to improve uh, their image. Thousands are injured. Migrants in groups of up to 200 
regularly tried to cross the border into Saudi Arabia after making multiple attempts after the border guards pushed them back. Migrants told Human Rights Watch that their groups had more women than men and unaccompanied children. Human Rights Watch has identified Saudi border guard posts from satellite images that are consistent with these accounts. Human Rights Watch also identified what appears to be a mine-resistant ambush protected at one of the Saudi border guard posts. The vehicle appeared to have a heavy machine gun mounted in a turret on its roof. People travelling in groups described being attacked by mortar projectiles and other explosive weapons from the direction of Saudi border guards once they had crossed the border. Those interviewed described 28 incidents with Saudi border guards using explosive weapons. Survivors said the Saudis sometimes held them in detention facilities, in some cases for months. All described scenes of horror. Women, men and children's bodies strewn across the mountainous landscape, severely injured, already dead and dismembered. First I was eating with people and then they were dying, said one person. There are some people who you cannot identify because their bodies are thrown everywhere. Some people were torn in half. Some said Saudi border guards would descend from their border guard posts and beat survivors. A 17-year-old boy said border guards forced him and other survivors to rape two girl survivors after the guards had executed another migrant who refused to rape another survivor. It was during the night. We were traveling towards the Saudi border. Then we saw Saudi border guards. They told us to stop. While they walked towards us, they opened fire and fired a bullet at us. One bullet hit a rock and hit my leg. My leg is broken around my knee. It's a dangerous migration route, often referred to as the Eastern Route. It spans from the Horn of Africa across the Gulf of Aden through Yemen and into Saudi Arabia. Migrants and asylum seekers crossing into Saudi Arabia usually do so in the mountainous border area aided by a network of smugglers and traffickers and facilitated by the Houthi forces who control Yemen. When the firing stopped, the Saudi border guards took us in my group, there were seven people, five men and the two girls. The border guards made us remove our clothes and they told us to rape the girls. The girls were 15 years old. One of the men refused. The border guards killed him on the spot. I participated in the rape. Yes. To survive, I did it. The girls survived because they didn't refuse. This happened at the same spot where the killing took place. Smugglers operating in Yemen take people to two informal camps before attempting to cross the border. Many people interviewed by Human Rights Watch say Houthi forces control the entry and exit into these camps and would often extort bribes from the migrants or transfer them to detention centres. Migrants and asylum seekers often saw Saudi border guards patrolling the crossing points in large vehicles with what witnesses described as large objects mounted on the back of their vehicles believed to be weapons. Human Rights Watch interviewed survivors who say they lost one or more limbs due to the use of explosive weapons or shootings at the border. We walked in the mountains for about five days. We walked in groups, minimum 300 people, and most of the group was female. Then there was firing from the border guards and they were firing big rocket launchers at us. It was like a bomb. 
Of the 300 people, 150 died. The Saudi border guards were firing a big things like a mortar to us. They fired from the back of a truck. We lost 130 people that day. The majority were women and the children. It really is incredible stuff. Uh, that report from Human Rights Watch was published yesterday. The voices of actors speaking there. Now, thanks uh, to Deirdre texting us, WhatsApping us today, saying flip-flops and free suits. It's a joke what's happening in RTA. A number of comments about RTA coming to us. Uh, one from Sean, who says Joe Duffy's annual wages of €351,000 is just about equal to her own Taoiseach's pay plus that of the Prime Minister of France. It's no wonder Joe can have a big laugh on his funny Friday. Well, Joe, it's not funny anymore. And let's hope we, the suffering public, will have the last laugh. Thank you indeed uh, for that, uh, Sean. Uh, A totally separate topic, uh, Ellen in touch, saying, Michael, what's going on with car insurance? Again, I paid €354. Last year, got a quote for €460 this year, the same company. That's €100, a a 10% increase. No claims or penalty points, Ellen says. Uh, Thank you indeed, uh, Ellen, for that. Um, I don't know, shop around, I I think, is the advice. See if you can get a a better quote elsewhere. It's usually the case. Uh, I don't know, uh, loyalty doesn't pay. Uh, going and shopping around seems to. James Indrahada says uh, the whole RTE licence fiasco is playing right into the hands of the government because they want to introduce a communications licence. Thanks for that, James. A separate James, a different James, says there's a culture of greed and corruption in RTE. Sack them all. All these sports commentators who wore those suits. Marty Morrissey spinning around in his free car. Most importantly, the chair and the board must go immediately, says James. Well, Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. Our telephone number, if you do want to comment on the programme, 041 text or WhatsApp 086 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, we were t- talking about the closure of uh, the Obelisk Bridge in uh, Drogheda yesterday. You may remember Frank Godfrey was up at uh, the toll in Donore uh, because uh, a lot of people think that the problems, the closure of the bridge and the road with it will cause uh, would uh, be alleviated to some degree, uh, at least if uh, the toll was lifted. That's not going to happen. Uh, and the bridge is going to be closed for 10 months. We were at least 10 months. So we were contacted by Kevin Faulkner of uh, the Drogheda Taxi Federation. He's the chair of uh, the Federation uh, and on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you, Kevin, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. This is going to cause problems, you believe, for your members and people who use taxis. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Um, well, the travelling public may have to pay more for taxis when the taxi is stuck in traffic and the metre is running. And the other problem is when we have so much heavy volumes of traffic there's going to be a shortage and supply of taxis on the roads because they'll be all stuck in the traffic. And um, I think uh, this should have been handled a little bit better than it is because if it was happening in Dundalk, it would be handled better. And uh, and this job, Michael, it's going to take, they say, at least 10 months, but it'll be 10 months plus. And the authorities for this job don't seem to have considered the cost to the local people. And I was wondering, could the timescale of this job be speeded up? I mean, will they be working shifts or weekends? 
Oh, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I'm sure we can get a, a, an answer to it. Uh, but uh, you believe that the closure of the road uh, at peak times in particular is going to cause problems. I don't think we've seen any problems yet. Uh, take it the bridge is closed at this stage. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if it's closed at the minute, but we are going to see problems in the regions of Mel, Georgia Street, North Road, Rathmullen Road and the Dano Road. It's not going up there so much. It's going to be coming back down. And the reason I'm saying about taxis is because we get calls from uh, um, the Aldi and Lidl up in these parts. Yeah. And they're going to have to sit in the traffic going back down the town. Mm. And, uh, and, and and a lot of drivers in this are in the same habit every day. Like they drop kids off at school, they go and collect from school, People, other people go and come from work. They just stick to the same old road and add to the volume of the traffic. Mm. You know, and when they should take another route, because if they see a tailback in front, they should say, right, I'll turn around and I'll go another way. That mm. would help alleviate some of the problems that we have. Mm. You've got to think before you drive on the roads. Mm. Uh, but, I mean, nobody knows uh, the flow of traffic, I suppose, better than taxi drivers in any town uh, across uh, the country. Uh, this would be seen as a, a main archery into the town, and one of the main routes into the town. It's a wonderful shortcut, and um, people do use it a lot. But um, I would, I would like to see it upgraded myself, but under a shortened time span. And but the other thing I was going to mention, Michael, was in other countries they use school buses to to ferry children, and I need teenagers as well, and they ferry the teenagers to and from schools. This takes an awful lot of traffic off the road that, mm. that wouldn't be on it if they supplied buses. Mm. Um, but anyway, that's where we're, we're falling behind in this thing. All right. And, uh, and of course, we have another problem is there's no traffic management plan in the town for this when it's going to happen. And the traffic lights don't work on sensors. That mm. should be letting traffic go when there's nothing coming the other way. Right. Uh, somebody uh, in touch with his essay saying they only saw one sign for the bridge closing uh, since uh, the evening before last. Uh, it was on the western side of uh, the junction on the Slane Road, uh, but no signs, they said, on the old bridge to Donor Road to warn people in advance. Uh, very little has been done by way of preparation, it would seem. Well, we should have been given more information, but like... Uh it's 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 happening in Drogheda City, so Dundalk don't care about Drogheda anymore. They, they, if, it, if it was happening in Dundalk, it would be sorted. We'd have all sorts mm. of information. Frank Godfrey was but, saying something like that yesterday. Do you really believe that? Yeah. Yeah. No, Frank was very good in what he done yesterday, yeah. and, and and he was right in what he was saying. Mm. But there's no interest in Drogheda. Absolutely none. Because mm. you, we have we have representatives as well. What do they do? What do they? They do nothing. Ah, we uh, well, now, now, in fairness, each of the TDs have been very proactive on this, asking the minister, contacting TII, contacting the council. Uh, many, many suggestions made uh, by each of the TDs, and I, I think it's true to say the same of the councillors. The most interesting response of all, Kevin, I thought, and I don't know what you think, but I thought the most interesting response came from TII, Transport Infrastructure Ireland, because they could have negotiated lifting the toll which would have cost the state about 3 million euro which is not a a lot of money in the big scheme of things Uh, but they said that if you were to lift the toll it would make the traffic worse in Drogheda they seem to think that if you lifted the toll at Donor the cars on the M1 would suddenly think oh we may as well go into Drogheda Uh, does that make any sense to you? Michael you're absolutely right with that statement and they're absolutely right as well 
Strawhutter will be chocolate pockets, but chocolate block if they lift the tolls because people will know the tolls are lifted and they want to come into Strawhutter and they want to shop. This is this is why they don't shop in it. They bypass it every day. So it would make the traffic congestion worse if they lifted the tolls. But anyway, lifting the tolls is mm. not going to happen because it's all got to do with money at the end of the day. OK, I'm surprised to hear you say that. I didn't think that would have been the case. But fair enough if uh, you think people would come into the town if they were to lift the tolls. Uh, so it's make the best of a bad situation, is it? Uh, it is indeed. And uh, the other thing I was going to mention to you, Michael, was Nobody oversees the temporary traffic lights that pop up on the roadworks. For example, there was the Thames and Feckin Road for the last month about, and they had temporary traffic lights. And there was about a three-minute-plus delay while you waited to go forward. And that three minutes was maintained throughout the bank holiday, throughout weekends, and you were sitting there waiting when there was nothing coming, even in the early hours of the morning. Yeah. Or early instead of Instead of it being on a sensor. Instead of the time being shortened, once they set those lights on the three minutes plus, mm. that's it. You have to sit there. That's ridiculous, Michael. Yeah. Mm. But yeah. I'm saying no. Uh, uh, the, the, the good thing about that is you know how long you're going to have to wait because the clock is ticking down. What I have uh, experienced there, I've thought remarkable, is that there's definitely one or two or three or four or maybe five cars at times that are breaking the red light. Oh, correct. Seeing that myself. But listen, that's a chance they're taking. And it'd be wonderful if there was a camera attached to the red lights as well and they could get their reg. Okay, Kevin, we leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for contacting us and joining us uh, this morning. Kevin Faulkner is uh, the chairperson of uh, the Drogheda Taxi Drivers uh, Association. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's hear from Trim. Michael Breen is in Trim and Michael Breen is sick of plastic. Good morning to you, Michael, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us to tell us about the new Sick of Plastic Trim branch. This is a a campaign uh, that uh, began with Friends of the Earth and Voice of Concern for the Irish Environment. Tell us a, a little bit about what you're trying to achieve locally in Trim, if you would, please, Michael. Hi, Michael, and thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, some of us set up this group earlier this year, and I suppose some of the reasons why we we felt we wanted to set it up um, were concerned for the environment and the amount of plastic and uh, plastic products and single-use plastic in particular, obviously, that gets into the environment, our roadsides and rivers and, and I suppose, um, oceans as well and, and um, also concerned about human health because uh, as you probably know Michael, plastic takes an awful long time to to degrade like a plastic bottle for example takes up to 500 years to break down as it's, as it's doing so it leaches chemicals because there are kind of harmful chemicals in plastic it breaks up into microplastics uh, which then get into the ocean and to to fish and to animals and 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 they've even now found that you know microplastics in the human bloodstream and breast milk and things like that. Mm. And that's if you put your plastic bottle in the bin, uh, it'll take five hundred years, as you say. Uh, it, it'll be used again if recycled, uh, but you won't have any of these problems if you don't use the plastic bottle at all to begin with. Exactly. Exactly. Like plastic is a, is a, you know, I suppose one of the reasons why it's so hard to break down is, is maybe the same reason it's been so successful as a product. It's so tough. It's so durable. It's so uh, adaptable. It's used in cars and it's used in uh, airplanes and it's got so many uses, but it's primarily, I suppose, for, uh, for food packaging. Um, 
and we do, you know, we do recycle, I think, 29% of our plastic in Ireland. But I think that figure is a little bit deceptive because most of that is exported to non-EU countries, countries in Africa, India, Turkey, places like that. And we're not exactly sure if all of it is recycled when it gets there. We do know that an awful lot of plastic is ending up in the oceans and in the, the wider environment mm. and is really beginning to cause problems. What uh, really irritates me is plastic that is not recyclable. And I, I often wonder, why not use recyclable plastic? Uh, you quite often see it uh, with meat products uh, and uh, other yeah. pieces of packaging that there's nothing you can do with it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I know that some some shops and outlets and supermarkets have started using compostable bags, let's say maybe for fruit and vegetables and things like that. But I suppose as I've been doing a little bit of research on that, I've learned that compostable really probably isn't the answer because it's only compostable if it, if it goes in the brown bin and then goes to an industrial uh, composting facility. If that's left in a bin, it's just really the same as ordinary plastic and takes an awful long time to mm. break down. Well, in my house, it'll go straight into my compost bin and it will make me compost, which will really make my flowers grow at no cost uh, rather than going up uh, to the garden centre and buying compost. So I, I, I'd have no problem with that. But most people don't do that or don't use the brown yeah, bin, as you I, say. You're, you're better organised than I am. I have that on my list to do. Mm, OK, well, it's very rewarding uh, and results in very little rubbish going out of the house um, we'd put the black bin out maybe twice three times a, a year uh, the green bin I don't know maybe six times a, a year uh, because we just compost everything that is possibly compostable yeah that's excellent you know and and I think that shows like a lot of people want to do the right thing and that would be our experience even of putting out some messages on local Facebook groups you know encouraging people to bring their own container even to to, to the butchers or to the supermarket, maybe for meat or fish or, or salad, you know, to bring their own small reusable bags for, for, for fruit and veg. Unfortunately, I suppose, as you've alluded to there, it's not always possible. Fruit and veg, a lot of the time unnecessarily, comes in packaging. It doesn't really need to. Mm. More of it should be loose so that people can just get into the habit of popping a couple of containers or a couple of small plastic, uh, small, sorry, small mm. reusable bags with their reusable bag that they're already bringing for their shopping to um, to cut down on yeah. packaging. But that would be sensible and grown-up, Michael. Uh, unfortunately, most of us aren't sensible and grown-up. We're like children and we're attracted to colours. Uh, there's certain things that we're attracted to and packaging draws us in. And if you see uh, an old piece of broccoli on a supermarket shelf uh, and look at one beside it wrapped up in plastic uh, with due diligence and care, nice fancy sticker and, and all of the rest, it seems as though we opt for the one that is wrapped. And, you know, the companies uh, do their marketing and their research. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And they find that we want the items that are packaged. Uh, It's down to us, isn't it? Uh, uh, And what we're choosing and what we're asking for. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I don't know too much about the psychology of supermarkets and shopping and attracting shoppers, but I'm sure you're right that it's, you know, the way things are packaged and placed is probably done quite cleverly. I do think, though, that, as I said, I think most people want to help the planet if they can. I mean, our generation, I suppose, Michael, you know, we're only stewards of the planet. We're trying to leave it in a good place for the, for the younger people coming through the next generations. I don't think we're doing a particularly good job. I was looking at the news this morning and there's serious flash floods in, in even California and a lot of uh, states in, in the U.S. There's, you know, wildfires in um, Canada. We're beginning to see more and more climate chaos and you know, you'd be concerned about what we're leaving for, for the next generations coming through, you know? Mm, absolutely. What, what what are you going to do in, in Trim? Because this is a, a local campaign, isn't it? Yeah, it's a local campaign. It's I mean it's a it's a global issue, but you know, we could we could probably become easily become overwhelmed by everything that's happening with the climate and think there's there's nothing I can do and just sit in our hands. But you know, really for me, and, and I know a lot, probably a lot of the people listening are already involved in maybe tidy towns campaigns or local committees or volunteering even locally in their GA club. But I suppose I haven't been living in Meath too long. I feel very lucky to live here. You know, it's a great, great county, great history. Um, and so we've started this group. We're going to be working with the tidy towns committee. They're very supportive. We're, we're, we're hoping to link in with Meath County Council as well. Start to approach local businesses and just hopefully work together with them, with other community groups and raise awareness and move forward together and encourage them and have a conversation about reducing plastic packaging because I think a lot of people do want the opportunity to do their bit. Mm. They can, you know, easily get into the habit of a couple of plastic containers for a couple of steaks or something or or bake, or, or reusable bags for, for fruit and veg or bakery. Some countries like New Zealand have already banned the small, the light plastic bags for fruit and veg. They said it's not necessary, which which it really isn't. Mm. Um, and we'd like it to be, um, you know, a, a community movement similar to what's going on at the minute for tidy towns and trim and and other things. That there's you know, there's a lot going on, um, and move forward together. We'd like to recognise good practice amongst local traders, coffee shops, restaurants, shops, pharmacies. That are that are doing their bit and making the effort to to cut down on 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 single use plastics because unfortunately even though Ireland was very progressive in introducing the plastic bag levy, I think it was two thousand and two, we're now the number one producer in Europe of 
plastic waste. We're bringing home more plastic than ever in our reusable shopping bags. Okay. Uh, you've an email uh, address, which is possibly the easiest one for listeners to remember, which is sickofplastictrim at gmail.com. Uh, and you're on WhatsApp, and I'll give that number in a, a moment. Uh, but you're hoping that some people might uh, join up with you as part of this campaign. Yeah, that would be great, uh, Michael, if, if people would like to join, not just from Trim, but from surrounding towns and surrounding areas as well. We'd, we'd love for people to, to join. We're having a meeting next week. Thursday the 31st. Uh, I don't know if you guys were able to put it up on the website or something. That would be great. Uh, Thursday the 31st in the Trim Family Resource Centre at 7.30. And if people want to come along and get involved, we'd love to see them. Okay, that's the Trim Family Resource Centre on Thursday at half seven. Sick of plastic, trim at gmail.com. The WhatsApp number 87 77 one six nine eight zero. That's oh eight seven 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 one six nine eight zero. Michael, thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us on the program today. Michael Brain is uh, the chair of Sick of Plastic Trim. Let me go back uh, to some more of uh, the comments coming to us. Uh, Darren in the Teleporter was uh, in touch with us, and he says, "Michael, it's time for the governing bodies to start investigating your wages." Um, let me see. <laughs> how much I have there Darren um, yeah, it'll be a short investigation but thanks indeed uh, for the suggestion um, we'd uh, somebody else uh, whatsapping us uh, Sean saying the agent's fee working for RTE so-called stars is 15% this would amount to Joe Duffy paying his agent uh, 52,650 for his services it would be interesting to know if uh, Joe can claim tax back on this amount as he's employing the agent it's all smoke and mirrors and maybe that is what is supposed to be conveyed. Uh, sorry, Michael, if I, I'm boring you, says Sean. Not at all, Sean. Uh, thanks uh, for getting back with another comment. More comments, the better, we always uh, say. Thank you indeed. Uh, we'd uh, Somebody else in, in touch with us uh, about uh, the Obelisk Bridge. Uh, Michael, Mr Faulkner was right. This is Kevin Faulkner of the Taxi Drivers Association. He says, I think people at the top in County Louth don't think County Louth uh, goes further than Castle Bellingham. And I'm disgusted with politicians and local government. Uh, another text about that from someone who, who says, we've a lot of road closures here in Dundalk too and nobody in Drogheda cares. Stupid statement from that taxi driver. Thanks uh, to uh, you as well. Margaret, uh, thanks as well. She says, so we have seven investigations into what's going on in RTE. Need I ask who will pay the seven bills? The answer is so the taxpayer, of course. Who else? We've had report after report into many wrongdoings over the years, all paid for by the taxpayer, yet nothing has changed. The mantra of lessons need to be learned. This can't happen again. People need to be held to account. It's all hot air from politicians who haven't done a whole lot to stop these things happening again. Talk is cheap, but the harm that has been done and is being done is very expensive on the taxpayers of this country. Margaret goes on to say our government ministers need to do a lot more. They have uh, the titles, but what exactly are they in charge of? Did Minister Martin know what was going on in RTE before it hit the media? If not, why didn't, if not, why, why didn't she, as uh, RTE, as part of her remit? 
Thank you, Margaret. Interesting question. Uh, just want to go to a text that came from Jackie yesterday, uh, just uh, quickly, if I can. Uh, this is to do with uh, the ongoing conversation about uh, the Christian Brothers' legal strategy, which is obstructing victims of child sexual abuse from getting redress from the order. We'll be speaking to Nolene Blackwell of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre about that uh, a little bit later on. But Jackie says, by attempting to ignore or dismiss survivors People risk perpetuating the very culture that allows child sexual abuse to persist. This kind of dismissive attitude sends a message that survivors' pain is not significant enough to warrant attention, which only emboldens potential abusers and discourages others from coming forward. Ethical action involves creating an environment in which survivors feel safe to share their stories and where they are believed and supported. When we choose to validate survivors' experience and listen to their stories, we send a powerful message that their voices matter. Acknowledging their pain is a critical step towards healing both individually and collectively. Providing platforms for survivors to share their stories not only encourages them to break the silence, but also raises awareness about the prevalence and devastating impact of child sexual abuse. I ask the people of Drogheda to support us asking by asking their local representatives to do the same, says Jackie. Thank you indeed uh, for that message. Uh, apologies, I didn't get the time to come to it yesterday. Our telephone number 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, we had an email from Gisbert Bayert in Trim asking if we could find out anything from Irish Water uh, in the way uh, that he tried to find out something himself uh, about why uh, there is so uh, many restrictions or restrictions, uh, nighttime restrictions on the supply of water uh, are going on so long in Trim. This is into the fourth week. He said, I've asked Irish Water several times as to when they say these restrictions, they see these restrictions ending, I've asked via Twitter, email and on the phone. All I'm getting from them is that the restrictions will end when the reservoir levels recover. I've never heard of a reservoir that needed three weeks for its levels to recover. Uh, he says their communication is absolutely dreadful to say the least. I think we're in our rights to request an outlook from them uh, and he said it was very frustrating uh, we did get in touch with Irish Water and um, well I think it probably is expected I think the problem in Trim is that there's a lot of heavy rain and this is the oddest thing uh, it's that when the rain falls out of the sky and goes into the rivers uh, that mud comes with it because the rain is so heavy and they can't filtrate the, uh, the, the the water as a result. And Nishka Aaron says it's working hard to upgrade the filtration systems in the short term. Uh, and the works are progressing well, expected to be completed in the coming weeks. In the longer term, they plan a major project to upgrade and modernise Trim's water supply. Uh, but that won't be completed until the end of 2025. No good news for Gisbert. Let's go to Rory O'Muraku, who's a Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead, uh, because there's been a, a lot of frustration, I, I think, from people local to you, Rory O'Muraku, uh, trying to find out uh, what's wrong with the water in Knockbridge and surrounding areas. Yeah, yeah, no, Knockbridge and, and right up into Hackwells Cross. And, and particularly in Sheila, which was obviously at the end of the system. Anyway, what happened, I think, from a technical point of view, and a lot of this I got indirectly, and it was only later that I got, you know, the updates that you could definitely stand over. And um, on Friday night, Storm Betty 
there was, uh, I'm going to say, power outage stroke pike, uh, spike at the Hilltop pumping station uh, on the RD Road, uh, and that was out. I think at the same time, and I'm going to use the wrong terminology, let's say Irish Water, the local authorities, uh, command and control in relation to what they were able to see, that system was kicked out. So what happened is um, the water that was within the network was being used up, and then by Saturday, we had a disaster. And in fairness, people were without water. And now, the Irish Water Stroke Local Authority on the ground staff like kicked into action. And we know that they went into the hilltop, that it was switched from automatic to uh, manual. But the problem was that that pumps into the Dunbin Reservoir. So you needed all of these then to fill up. And also in Sheila itself, which is the end of the line, in around Hackball's Cross, there are booster pumps, but they require enough water stroke pressure. But the problem, that's one thing. Mm. See, when you know somebody's dealing with an issue and if you could get a timeline, you will live with it, mm. right? Just like Gisbert and Trim, yeah. Exactly. But mm. the problem was people were uh, ringing Irish Water, checking the website, and they were just told, now you saw this little picture in Knockbridge, the little dot in Knockbridge on the Irish Water map, and it said, investigations on their way in relation to possible outage in uh, Knockbridge, Kilcarley, Hackball's Cross. Okay, mm. right, but at least people were ringing, and in fairness, we all did our piece indirectly, and, and I know that, you know, the likes of Tomas Sharkey and other councillors would have made contact. I made contact with anyone I possibly could, and sometimes from on the ground, council staff and others, like I would have rang somebody in water services who rang, let's say, um, the, the Irish Water Foreman, and, 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 I, and I got the, the update in relation to what was happening. So I was relatively happy that the work was happening. Now, I wasn't getting the timeline. You know, I was getting this is going to take a period of time, most likely at some stage on Monday. Um, but the problem was people were ringing Irish Water throughout the weekend. There was no update. In fairness, I rang Irish Water, and at one stage the guy says, we're trying to get the eastern lead. And we're trying to get the local authority caretaker. Uh, and if we could get them, we could at least update the, the information. So I passed on whatever information I had garnered to him and said, you need to contact X, Y, and Z. Now, in fairness, the guy seemed civil and whatever else, but we never got to a point of, of an updated um, of anything updated as regards the messaging the people got when they rang Irish Water or what was on the Irish Water website. And even worse, as this continued into Monday, I think the likes of Knockbridge water was restored uh, by um, by Sunday night. Um, but in Sheila, people started ringing up and they were again presenting their air codes and whatever else. And you were dealing with a new cohort of people who were saying, oh, we don't have anything like this on the system. Whereas if they had been given the proper instruction set that the works are being done, that as I say, that little dot that appeared somewhere just outside Dundalk and then somewhere else in Knockbridge related to the wider area. Now, what I'm also led to believe is that there are particular communication issues between the local authority uh, and and Irish Water. Now, I spoke to an engineer yesterday in Lowe County Council and they told me they also rang centrally into Irish Water to explain that everything was being done. But... Um, you know, there will be arguments made in relation to who is responsible for updating the information. Now, see if there see if there are communication issues. See if there are particular issues that need to be sorted. And I believe that liaison is ongoing. That needs to be done as quickly as possible. But in the very, very short term, 
we need to ensure that there's at least a bailing twine communication system put in place. So therefore, that here, even I know who to contact. And the minute anybody, um, as I say, people who are without water make contact to Irish Water, that it's investigated and very quickly that it's updated to tell you exactly what's going to happen. Mm. And also... Is there not a point of contact for public representatives? There's an... Yeah, we use... We use an elected reps and there's a phone line and there, which isn't very different. It probably goes through to the same um, central okay. office. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. And, and you have email. Look, I'll be honest. See, yesterday, whatever contact I made over the weekend, see, yesterday, I contacted the chief executive and everybody. I'll be, I'll be honest. Before mm. I came on your show, no. um, I, I got contact from, from Irish Water. Now, and the other thing I said is, Obviously, there will have to be learnings in relation to protocols and the fact that this system came, you know, went down and they lost, for the want of a better term, their eyes and ears in relation to the system. We, we need to make sure that is rectified, but we really, really need to put a better communication system in place. I'll be honest, if Irish Water hadn't rang me this morning, I would be calling them out as just being absolutely ridiculous in relation mm. to communication. You know what I mean? Now, well, we contacted Irish Water uh, ourselves yesterday on foot of your complaint, and obviously we speak to the press office, and they've outlined uh, more or less what you've told us, if not exactly what you've told us. They say there was a, a power outage at Hilltop Pumps over the weekend due to Storm Betty. This caused an area to be affected with low pressure or no water. Unfortunately, a knock-on effect was that there was insufficient water available to Sheila Pumps. They boost the water pressure to the Hackball's cross area uh, and therein is the answer that everybody was crying out for so if it, if it's possible to supply that answer your question is why wasn't it supplied yeah why was that not on the website and see if as i say there seems to be issues between the local authority and between uh, irish water that needs sorted i'll be honest i will be having further communication in relation to all of that also um, look, because this isn't good enough. As I say, what happens if this happens next week? You know what I mean? We, we can't wait until they have a full memorandum of understanding in relation to whatever particular issues they have to work out. We need to make sure, like in fairness, I will say this, a huge amount of work was obviously done. Um, we need to look into the circumstances and whether there was anything can be done differently to catch this earlier. That's fair enough. Um, but the problem is, Nobody was getting any element of communication. And see, when people were ringing Irish Water on Monday and they were being told, your problem isn't even registered, see whatever they may have heard before that was out the window. You know what I mean? And it also makes elected reps and others, you know what I mean? It means your credibility is, is in question. But, but that's not the major issue. The major issue is there was people without water, absolutely no communication and no notion in relation to when a timeline is. Now, in finding out what information I did, you suddenly discover that there is a serious communication problem between Irish Water and the local authority, and that needs to be dealt with. Here, I, I, I can't actually think of, uh, of a term other than it should have been done yesterday. But okay. we cannot go through, because look, you know yourself, Michael, this is hardly going to be the only particular issue we're going to have in relation to this. Also, when I was dealing with Irish Water, I don't think it'll be any big shock to you to say I brought up the issue again where I you know, sought an update in relation to our particular brown water issue in the uh-huh. book and, ma- and manganese. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. Did and you get I one? Told- Did you get an update? Well, I, here's the update I got, that there's a number of trials at this point in time that are being carried out. Some of them have been escalated and this is in Cavan Hill from a point of view of dealing with the manganese 
I have no timeline in relation to when this will be done. I think some of it has been somewhat successful, you know, uh, but but that doesn't mean that the flushing teams and whatever aren't going to continue until this this problem is sorted. And I will be in contact with them. I I think they may have they may have an update over the next couple of weeks. So. Um, as in the person who contacted me today, I will be contacting them in, in, in a fortnight because obviously that's a particular issue that the people of Dundalk and the surrounding areas have been dealing with for an absolute ridiculous amount of time. OK, we'll leave there for now. Thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Meath, Rory O'Murku. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now we'll return uh, to the issue of how Christian Brothers are using a legal strategy to obstruct victims of child sexual abuse from gaining justice. Uh, these are men who were raped, abused and tortured as little boys by Christian Brothers. Many years on, uh, those Christian Brothers have been convicted for their crimes uh, and uh, some of them are in prison or have spent time in prison. But suing the order for failing in its duty of care has proved impossible for these men. This is a strategy that has been criticised far and wide. And if you're listening to this programme on a regular basis, you know that Damien O'Farrell, one of the survivors who represents victims, is calling on councillors in Drogheda to rescind the freedom of Drogheda on Brother Edmund Garvey. That was given to him in 1997. Brother Garvey is a native of Drogheda. Uh, and is the brother who introduced uh, this strategy uh, that uh, victims say is re-traumatising them. Let's speak to Nolene Blackwell now. Nolene is uh, the CEO of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and a very good morning to you, Nolene, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Obviously, uh, you have a fair understanding of how this would impact on people as uh, the CEO of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, but you're also a human rights lawyer. What do you make of this strategy that has been adopted by the Christian Brothers? It is legally sound, but is it morally sound in your mind? So it, it is legally sound if you look at the technicality of Irish law. But the question is, does it actually allow people to access justice? Because we have lots of rules and regulations in the law. And over all of that, we have a constitution and we have international human rights treaties that Ireland has willingly entered into, which recognise that everybody in the land should have access to justice. And a lot of a lot of the complaints about lawyers, and I am one myself and very proud to be a solicitor, but a lot of the complaints about us is that when we focus in on the technicalities, we actually deny people access to justice. And um, many, many years ago, uh, a, a very famous lawyer said about access to justice. It was talking about the very posh Ritz Hotel in London at the time. I'm sure they're posher now. But at the time, the Ritz Hotel was the posh one. And uh, it said, uh, and he said, Access to justice is like access to the Ritz Hotel. Of course, it's open to everybody, provided you have the money and the power to get into it. And so that's where even at the level of the law and people's rights, this strategy adopted by the Christian Brothers, but not by other religious orders, is very troubling. 
And it's, it's troubling in terms of what it says about the Christian brothers, but also about a loophole in our law that is actually denying people access to justice. But other, as, as you and your listeners probably very well know, other orders who are also um, being challenged and being brought to court because of abuse uh, by victims of that abuse historically. What they do is they put forward a nominee. So if I'm a member of the order, I'm put forward as the nominee and you sue me and I take responsibility for the order, even if I didn't do it. And that allows people to go ahead mm. with their cases. But we have uh, um, uh, our law actually allows an order which is in a particular legal formation to not have that happen. They don't have to put forward that nominee. So what I would say, a long-winded answer to your question, Mm. Michael, Mm. is that, yes, it's legally possible to do this, but it definitely is denying victims of the most intimate awful form of abuse that could suffer to it, that could suffer. It's denying them access to the courts and denying them access to justice. And therefore, it is not right. And I mean that in the legal sense. And just to remind listeners that because uh, the Christian Brothers won't put forward a, a nominee, that means uh, that uh, the person who was abused as a, a little boy in this case uh, has to sue all of uh, the brothers who are alive. Uh, that runs into over a hundred. Uh, the Christian Brothers won't give the names or the addresses yeah. uh, to the men without a court order. So they have to go and get a court order. Then they get the court order and then they have to pursue a hundred plus people in every corner of the world. Uh, quite often uh, you'll find that there's Christian Brothers living now and indeed some of them are very elderly. They've done nothing wrong of course uh, but you have to go after them for damages. Yeah. Uh, some of them have dementia, living in nursing homes, and it really is implausible. Uh, and if it is possible at all, it's going to take many, many years. Why do you think the Christian brothers are doing that? And many, many tens of thousands. I mean, just the cost of doing all of that is way beyond any entitlement that people would have in Ireland to any form of legal aid. And so you need to be vastly well, not just well off, you need to be really wealthy to do it. Why are they doing it? I, they, they won't answer. Isn't that the case? The Christian Brothers have simply adopted that strategy, have kept it uh, going forward through changes in leadership. It wasn't always their strategy, but I suppose it is effective in meaning that they can hide longer. And as you say, it's even hard on their own members, but it means that they won't have orders made against them. Uh, but but why they are denying that is very very hard to see. So at that level, uh, there is um, there you you would love to hear from them what value what values they are adopting, how this is consistent with their order that they are doing this, um, and we don't know if there is a rational explanation mm. for it because they haven't. Uh, they haven't been available to speak about it and they haven't spoken about They haven't even told the courts. 
like the courts are the courts have asked them to stop it there's been uh, several high court judges uh, who've asked them to uh, take a different tack Uh, as uh, the chief executive of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre you've often told us that uh, sexual abuse has a a long lasting impact on many many people and you quite often appear on this programme and other media outlets I think uh, in order to reach out to people uh, so that they can get help with uh, that hurt and pain that they're feeling. We read out the phone number one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight, which gives support to people 24 hours a day in the most professional of ways and is a wonderful service. Uh, but uh, the reason I'm mentioning all of that, uh, Nolene, is that it's been said to me that because we continue to talk about this on the radio, we're traumatising victims and that we shouldn't be talking about it or we shouldn't be talking about it as much as we are. Uh, do you understand that? I, I do. And I mean, I hear that myself as well. Would I not just go away that it's tough enough that this happened uh, without uh, me going on about it the whole time? Um, and I fully respect uh, that that some people would prefer not to ever have to think about it and that maybe this conversation and others that I have and do have um, remind them about it. The reality, though, what we know and what our, um, what our research and our expertise will tell us is that part of the harm that has been done by sexual violence in this state so that one in every two women in the CSO survey has experienced sexual violence and nearly one in every three men experiences at some stage of their lives is because we haven't spoken about it because you could not mention that you were a victim of sexual abuse and the harm of not being able to talk about it of being made to feel that you were to blame for it of not being able to hear what the reasoning was behind that abuse in the first place. In the, the reality that the, the state allowed people to go ahead with that deeply harmful behaviour without taking full recognition of it. They've changed their view and they are now pursuing much better strategies. But until 10, 15 years ago, it was really, really hard to talk about this at all in general conversation. I would say 10 years is probably the outside of when people could start to speak about it. And that suppression, that failure to recognise the deep harm of sexual violence and abuse, the harm of forcing people to hold this awful pain is like as if you kicked out an internal organ out of place and people were not allowed to get treatment or support for it. Now there is support. And very often, very often, people will say to people who use the helpline or the web chat or who go to therapy to us or to Rape Crisis Northeast or any of the other rape crisis centres around the country, people will say their first step in healing was acknowledging it themselves. There is also such um, healing in being able to get your rights because, you know, it's not that people who were sexually abused Mm. didn't know that a wrong was done to them. They did really in their heart of hearts 
And to be able to talk about that wrong is equally important. To be able to hold someone responsible for doing that harm is equally is equally important. And until such time as we have a society where it is generally recognised, uh, as government recognises mm-hmm. now, that the domestic, sexual and gender-based violence is a, a deeply embedded harm in our society that has to stop. And, and even government, in its programme for government, called it an epidemic. And I like that analogy mm-hmm. because in an epidemic, you have to provide support for those who are harmed. And you need to you speak about it. You have to then mm-hmm. also allow people to change their habits. But you also finally have to stop the people who are doing it from carrying out that harm and mm. and ensure that they make reparation for the harm that they have done. Okay, to so, its shame, um, uh, and I spoke about this yesterday, Drogheda has reacted very badly in uh, the past, uh, or officialdom in Drogheda, if you like, has reacted very badly in uh, the past to people who say they've been uh, assaulted. Uh, Drogheda uh, pulled down the shutters uh, when uh, women were complaining about uh, their wombs being removed uh, and unnecessary hysterectomies by Dr. Michael Neary. Uh, in the same way that for decades uh, people were ignored when they complained about being sexually abused by Michael Shine, uh, another doctor at the time. Uh, Damien's group say that councillors who are going to vote on this bar one uh, haven't met with them. Some of those councillors say uh, that they're in the middle of two sets of victims. One set of victims being Damien and the group uh, who want this honour to be removed and uh, another set uh, and I don't know who this refers to uh, who were abused by Christian brothers who don't want the freedom of the city to be removed they don't want us talking about it on the radio they say that they've gone through some form of mediation what that means I don't know uh, but that this campaign uh, will destroy that relationship that they have with the Christian Brothers to get compensation, uh, 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 not just uh, for the people uh, who have received it, but for those who may come after them. Uh, can two different sets of victims who have two different sets of needs and requests be pitted against each other? I, I think it's... it's uh it's a very sorry uh, state of affairs that people feel like that. And one of the things I would say that the Christian Brothers could do immediately is they could clarify to anyone that they're in mediation processes with that uh, that their process is for themselves. Because one of the things that's uh, one of the things that sort of comes out of the prevalence of sexual violence in Ireland and the amount of childhood sexual abuse that took place in institutions is that different people want different things. Some people want to go to court. Some people absolutely do not want to go to court, but they want to be heard and they want to be heard in a mediation or restorative justice process. That's, I mean, that's all fine. Some people don't want to, don't want to do anything except heal themselves. All of those are perfectly legitimate ways of wanting to deal with this. I would hope those who are going through a mediation process are properly supported in a professional way so that they so that they can understand that they can have their processes without it interfering with those who want to go to court those who want to go to court don't necessarily want everybody else to go to court that's not that's the way life is 
different people have different approaches. And I think what's really important, and uh, it would be horrific if they were being put under any pressure uh, to feel that, that somebody else expressing their view was, was making their mediation process less effective. And I just think that that's not Damien O'Farrell's problem or anyone of his group, nor is it really the problem of the mediation group. All of them are entitled to have their voices heard. And the, and the trouble is right now, the frustration uh, that I hear from through your programme and elsewhere from those who are going to court is they want to be heard. Of course, counsellors don't have to listen to anybody. But of course, also, it reinforces what those people who've been victims of sexual abuse know for years, that people want them to go away. Okay. They don't want to hear about it. Okay, just one last question. I think you've answered it. Sorry, uh, I'm really short on time. So a brief uh, response if possible, Nolene. Uh, I think you've probably answered this question to some degree. Last question, uh, because I think you've always said victims should be believed and that victims should be listened to. You said counsellors don't necessarily have to listen to Damien and the people he represents. Uh, do you think, though, that they should meet with that group, or do you think, or do you have any thoughts on uh, the freedom of uh, Drogheda and the call from Damien and the group uh, to rescind that? Yeah, so I've no, I've no views really on the freedom of Drogheda, and that's uh, and that's something that Damien and his group are asking for as part of um, a raising of their campaign. I do think that. Uh, Damien and his uh, his group, they have something they want to say, they want to say it publicly I do think it would be important that counsellors remember that victims of sexual abuse know through all their interactions over decades that they are likely to be brushed aside, they are likely not to be believed in relation to some of the worst harm that can happen to a child in their entire lives and that I think should be built into their, um, into their thinking mm. and after that of course it's, it's a matter for them then whether they meet. Thank you very much indeed. I'll just repeat uh, the 24-hour helpline for the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight. And thank you indeed to Nolene Blackwell, CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as always, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents which Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Kyle Waters joins us for this week's report from Enfield Garda Station and we're going to begin with an appeal following a fatal road traffic collision in Dundalk on Saturday night. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all the listeners. Gardaí and Dundalk are seeking witnesses to a fatal road traffic collision between a car and two e-scooters on the Armagh Road, Dundalk, County Loud, on Saturday the 19th of August 2023 between the Carnbeg Hotel and Dundalk Town Centre at approximately 11.30pm. That is Saturday the 19th of this month. One of the males was fatally injured and the second male was taken to Drogheda Hospital for his injuries. Gardaí are appealing for anyone who was in the area at the time and who may have dash cam footage to please contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042-938-8400. We're going to Drum Conrath uh, next, uh, where Garda are investigating a burglary. Yes, that's right, Michael. Uh, Garda and Nobber are investigating a burglary that occurred at a residential property at Mentrum Drum Conrath, County Mead, on Saturday the 19th at approximately 6.15pm. A member of the family returned home to discover a male sitting in a brown Mercedes A150 hatchback bearing English registration plates in the driveway 
and he took off at speed. A front window had been forced open and a quantity of cash was stolen from the property. Gary are appealing for anyone who may have witnessed anything suspicious in the area between these times or have any information that could assist the Gary to please contact Navin Garda Station on 046 90 Gary believes that this vehicle is, is involved in up to five burglaries in the North Mead area and are anxious for the public's assistance for any information on where the vehicle may be parked. Indeed, I'm sure that would be very valuable. Uh, that was a, a, on Saturday. Uh, on Sunday, there was an attempted burglary then in Kilcock. That's right, the uh, Mulhussey area. Uh, so, Gary in Dunboyne are investigating an attempted burglary the residential property um, on Sunday the 20th at approximately 7pm. neighbour reported observing suspicious males at the house wearing dark face coverings or balaclavas and one suspect was observed climbing the drain pipe to gain access to an open upstairs window, but fled when they were disturbed. They left the scene in a black Audi A3, partial registration 09CE for Clare, in the direction of Manuk. Gary, are interested in speaking with anyone who may have witnessed anything suspicious in the area or may have dash cam footage, please contact Ashburn Garda Station on 01801 Now to a truly dreadful story in Carlingford, uh, where two elderly men were uh, approached and a wallet was stolen. Correct, Michael. Um, Gardy in Carlingford are looking for the public's assistance in relation to a theft from person incident which occurred in the Liberties area of Carlingford at approximately 2.20pm on Friday the 18th of August. So two elderly gentlemen were out for a walk when they were approached by a male driving a dark-coloured car, possibly a Toyota Corolla, on Irish registration plates. The suspect asked the two elderly males for identification on the pretense that he was a member of Angarda Shikana. One of the males handed over his wallet, believing that the male was a Garda, and the car sped off in the direction of Northern Ireland. The males were not injured, but were believed to be very shook after the incident. Garda are appealing for anyone who may have witnessed anything suspicious in the area to please contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042 OK, and we're going to conclude with a cyber crime or attempted extortion, and probably a lesson in this particular report for all of us about what we do on the internet. Yeah, correct. Gardaí and Trim are investigating the attempted extortion incident that reported to ourselves on the 16th of August. A member of the public reported clicking on a link online via website. A number of hours later, they received an email from their own email address stating that access was gained to their email address and they requested US dollars for the return of their email. They were advised to change their passwords on all devices and social media platforms. No access was gained to the person's bank accounts and no financial loss occurred on this occasion. But Gardy wished to make the public aware of these kind of scams and not to engage with them and always be vigilant while using the internet. Okay, Garda Kyle Waters in Enfield Garda Station. Thank you very much indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. That's where our time runs out on us though today. Thanks to Maggie McGuire who researched the programme. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.